You're listening to The Raven and the Writing Desk, a weekly podcast about the writings of Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. This is episode 14. Welcome back, everyone. Chris Lester here. And first off, I want to apologize for the delay in this week's episode. I went to record it and discovered that my digital audio interface, the device that connects my microphone to my computer, had died after seven years of faithful service. Fortunately, you guys came to my rescue. We ran a GoFundMe campaign to raise the money for a new audio recorder. It arrived on Friday, and now we're back on the air. Thank you so much to everyone who contributed to the campaign. You guys rock. We're going to jump right back on the horse this week, so let's forego any further delays and get right to the fiction. If you haven't listened to episodes 12 and 13, go back and hear those first before listening to today's installment. Today I'm bringing you part three of The Cuckoo, a novella in the world of Metamore City. In parts one and two, we met John, an incubus working as a missionary priest for the Church of Hedonism. We saw John reach out to a potential convert, the lonely and isolated Baronessa Delilah Velasco de Moraine. Delilah was wedded to Baron Vincent Moraine, in what turned out to be a political maneuver by Vincent to gain power and status within the Metamore nobility, as Delilah is about to become the heir to a powerful Tornish noble house. Neglected by her new husband, Delilah has found new enjoyment in her private dancing lessons with John, who is disguising himself as a minor member of a Metamorian noble house. But the Moraine household holds danger for John, in the form of the Moraine's butler, Gerhard. Part celestial, Gerhard can smell John's infernal heritage, and is immediately suspicious of John's intentions towards his mistress. John gave himself some breathing room by seducing the Moraine's maid, Isabel, and persuading her to keep Gerhard distracted while he focuses on trying to free Delilah from her sad and lonely existence. Be warned, this story contains graphic language and strong sexual content. It's not for children. Listener discretion is advised. The Cuckoo By Chris Lester Part 3 Isabel was as good as her word, and twice as clever as I gave her credit for. She talked to Gerhard incessantly about the wonderful things she was learning in our dance classes— and kept wheedling for him to come back and join us. Delilah would order him to participate any time he was actually in the penthouse, so after a couple more appearances, he consistently found urgent business that required him to be elsewhere. In the event that he couldn't come up with a reason to leave, Isabel would casually remark that they were out of some ingredient for the evening's dinner, or that the skimmer needed to be taken in for some maintenance, and Gerhard would immediately rush to attend to the matter. I think Isabel came off as being so sweet and innocuous that it never occurred to him that she might be conning him. After that first day in the shower, Isabel could hardly keep her hands off of me. Our private exercise sessions were a delightful way for me to gain back the energy I expended while dancing, though I was careful not to take too much of her life force, lest I leave her unconscious on the bathroom floor. Through it all, I never made a move toward Delilah, 
treating her only with the utmost courtesy. She noticed this, betraying it with little sidelong glances and unfinished sentences. The only time I let any passion reveal itself was in our dancing, where our combined fire could have melted lead. Once the dance was over, though, I reined in my aura and returned to an attitude of polite deference. It took about three weeks before she'd had enough. Isabel, she said, after one particularly energetic session, go ahead and get cleaned up. I would like a word with Mr. Vance. Disappointment warred with anticipation on the girl's face. Oui, madame. Monsieur John? She curtsied to each of us, then left, shutting the door behind her. I raised my eyebrows slightly. My lady? She said nothing at first. Turning, she grabbed a towel from one of the nearby pieces of exercise equipment and mopped her brow. She used the gesture to avoid looking at me as she spoke. I know what you are doing with Isabel. I lowered my head in a slow nod. I never presumed that you didn't. She set down the towel and retrieved her water bottle. She took a long drink before speaking again. Would you care to explain yourself? I shrugged. She's a beautiful young woman. She offered, I accepted. I hesitated. If you command it, I'll refuse her in the future. That is not what I meant. She wheeled on me. Her eyes smoldered with anger. I want you to explain how you have treated me. I cocked my head at her, saying nothing. She let out a sound of exasperation. When we dance, there is this... this energy between us. This connection. I felt it the first time we danced at the ball, and I feel it every time since, as if our souls were touching. She gestured fitfully. But then the dance ends and you become so, so cold to me. And then you go and give yourself to Isabel instead. She came up and looked me squarely in the eye. It is cruel, John, and I did not believe that you were a cruel man. So I want you to tell me why you do this. I reached out and took her hands gently in mine. She didn't flinch away. My lady, I meant no disrespect. I've felt the same connection that you feel. Whenever I leave here, I hunger for it until I return. But you are married. Tontaron, she snapped. My marriage is a joke. It is a, a persona made for public consumption. She echoed the words that I had used to describe my own identity as John Tiffrey, and I winced at the bitter sound she put in the words. She pulled her hands free from mine and turned away, bowing her head. Do you know how many times Vincent and I have made love since our honeymoon? Five. Five times in seven months. She looked up at the skylight overhead. Every time, it was because I asked him why he didn't touch me. He never comes to me first. At first I thought he was just busy, but... But it makes me think that there is something wrong with me. She sniffed and wiped at her eyes. No. I said, hoarsely. There's nothing wrong with you, Delilah. I shrugged, helplessly. Some people just don't have any sex drive. They can't help it. It's just part of who they are. It's not even a disorder, really, though it may feel like it to sexual people. Maybe that's what's going on with Vincent. But that is not what is going on with you. She looked over her shoulder at me, misery etched on her face. I feel so alone here. Pawn in other people's games. 
Vincent wants the power of House Velasco. My father wants House Moraine's connections in Metamor. No one seems to care about what I want. I took a step towards her. And what do you want, Delilah? She looked down at my hands, then back to my eyes. To be touched? To feel close to someone? Even for just a little while? I came over and placed my hands on her shoulders. She turned to me then, slowly, and I placed a hand under her chin and guided her lips to mine. She tasted every bit as sweet as I had imagined. I kissed her slowly, gently, savoring the moment. I wrapped my arms around her and just held her, letting her set the pace. Where Isabel was all hurried, youthful enthusiasm, Delilah had maturity and experience on her side. She knew how to take her time. Somewhere in the course of that embrace, we started moving together. Slow, fluid steps, a turn, more steps. She reached down and took my left hand in hers, while her other hand went to my right bicep, the abrazo, the close embrace of the tango. Our feet found the familiar patterns instinctively, moving around the room to a music that no one heard but both of us could feel. We did everything at half-tempo, spinning her out, drawing her back in, letting her wrap herself around me as we turned in slow, gentle circles. Each time we came back together, our lips would meet, stirring more of the passion inside us. Her hands found the buttons of my shirt and opened them. When she came back from a spin, running her body down my leg and back up again, her hands opened the fly of my slacks. I lifted her in a saltito, and when she came back down, I opened the zipper at the back of her unitard. She turned and spun as I freed first one arm, then the other. Then she pushed down the fabric in one smooth motion and stepped free of it. She hooked a leg around me and drew me in, then slid slowly downward, taking my pants and boxers with her. We paused there while she untied my shoes, the first time in all of it that we had broken the rhythm of the dance. I stepped out of the garments as she rose, then met her in a deep and fiery kiss as she slipped the shirt off of my shoulders. We found the rhythm again and began to dance once more, our clothing scattered across the dance floor. Two bodies moved as one, with nothing but air and sweat between them. Freed of all constraints, our dancing became even more overtly erotic. I raised her into a lift and nuzzled her breasts. She slipped between my legs and drew the side of her calf against my cock, gently stroking it to life. She ran her tongue over one of my nipples. I left a trail of kisses down the side of her neck. When at last we were both so aroused that neither of us could bear it a moment longer, I spun us out of the line of dance, picked her up, and pressed her against the wall. She wrapped her arms and legs around me without hesitation, and in one smooth motion I slid myself inside her. The rhythm of the dance now shifted to another kind of rhythm, but still we took our time, reveling in the feeling of our bodies moving together. My aura lapped up the sexual energy coming off of her, boosting my strength and stamina. With her back braced against the wall, I could hold her up all day if I had to. Oh, gods, she breathed. Don't stop. Don't stop, John. Wasn't planning on it, I said. I pinned her to the wall with a hard, deep thrust, then leaned forward to suck on one of her nipples. She mewled and moaned at the teasing of my lips and tongue, 
then grabbed the hair at the back of my head and turned my face upward for a soul-searing kiss. The intensity and emotion in that kiss surprised even me, and I know from kissing. Something shifted between us, a realignment of energies, or maybe the balance of power. I found myself sinking to the floor with Delilah on top of me, looking up in wonder at this shining vision of womanhood above me. Now she set the rhythm, rising and falling above me, driving both of us into greater heights of ecstasy. I forgot my mission, forgot my persona, forgot the thousand lies and manipulations that had brought me to this place. I forgot about my infernal powers to bend people to my will. As impossible as it may sound, I even forgot about feeding. In this moment, all that mattered was that I was a man and she was a woman, and together we were experiencing a connection that touched us in the very center of our being. She rode me to a shuddering climax, washing me in a torrent of sexual energy. I followed her an instant later. She collapsed onto my chest, kissing me slowly, tenderly, as if I were a person who mattered to her, and not just a convenient respite from a loveless marriage, not just a creature who had to take something from her in order to survive. I felt her aura wrapping itself around me, and it was bright and shining and beautiful. An aura of light, not the smoke and shadows that surround me when I call on my powers. She embraced me with her whole being, enfolding me with it. The sensation was like nothing I had ever experienced. I felt warm and safe and... loved. Holy shit. What do I do now? The next morning I sat staring at my breakfast, my mind a jumbled mess of thoughts and feelings. I didn't notice Jasmine watching me until she sat on the edge of the table and leaned over onto one hand above my plate, sticking her bare tits in my face in the process. I blinked and looked up at her face, which carried an expression of droll amusement. Do I have your attention now, John? I winced. Sorry. Did you need something, ma'am? She snorted and sat up, facing me. I should ask you the same question. You've barely moved in the last ten minutes. Where's your head today, anyway? I sighed. Gods, I don't know. Having sex with Delilah was... strange. She raised an eyebrow. That's like a fish saying water tastes funny. Strange how? I gestured helplessly. Look, have you ever had a fuck that was so emotionally intense that you felt like the whole world had changed around you? Like, like being with that person was the most important thing you could do, and, and somehow you're emptier when you have to leave them, but, but you'd still do it all over again in a heartbeat, just to be with them for that one moment. Jasmine stared at me open-mouthed for three full seconds. Then she laughed in my face. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my goddess, I cannot believe I'm hearing this. John, you stupid fuck, you went and fell in love with your target. No, I protested. She just grinned at me as the tip of her tail snaked down and tugged on my cock. Liar. I brushed her away and crossed my legs, annoyed. All right, maybe, I admitted. 
But that right there should tell you something's not right. You know me, I've been doing this for 15 years. I am a professional, not some starry-eyed kid. She crossed her arms, pushing her tits up a little higher. I admired the view, but not the way I used to. All right, so what do you think the problem is? I wanted to tell her that there was no problem, that I'd spend the rest of my life at Delilah's side if she so much as asked me to. But that wasn't the sort of thing a hedonist priest could say to his boss. All right, you know how we're supposed to be finding people who embody the hedonist principle? The folks with a piece of the divine spark that's close to ours? She nodded. Yeah, so? I hesitated, taking a drink of my orange juice while I composed my thoughts. Well, I think maybe Delilah has a different piece. Something related, maybe, but not quite the same. I swallowed. Something powerful. Jasmine shook her head. What? You think she's an embodiment of true love or something? She put a mocking lilt in the words, and I blushed in spite of myself. Maybe, I said, stubbornly. It would explain why she's having such a hard time with this political marriage of hers, and why she forms such a strong emotional bond with me. And why not? The Pantheon has Valena as well as Suspira. It has carobs along with Incubi and Succubi. And the humans have rubes as well as players, she countered. Our Lady's dear sister embodies something all right, but if you ask me, her brand of love is just innocence and gullibility. Kind of cute in a pathetic sort of way, but nothing you'd want to aspire to. I sighed again and rubbed at my temples. Look, I'm just saying, if I convert her to hedonism and her inner nature is something else, she's not going to get anything out of it. Oh, sure, she might enjoy herself, but she's not going to reach enlightenment. I'd be leading her further away from her true self. I shrugged. And then one day she dies, and her divine spark is just as confused as it always was. It gets reborn as someone else and has to go through the whole thing all over again. Sure, along with 99% of the rest of the world, Jasmine said. John, you're talking about throwing away a gold mine for the sake of an unprovable maybe. If we can plant one of our own inside House Velasco, we'll be in a position to influence the political landscape for generations. And to be honest, the money wouldn't hurt either. She rose to her feet and put a hand on my shoulder. We'll be able to touch millions of lives with Velasco's resources. Think about that. Suppose only one in fifty gets enlightenment out of it. That's still more than a fair trade for letting Delilah's soul take another spin on the cosmic merry-go-round. I glared at her. Oh, so this is about money and power. I'm sorry, I didn't realize we'd changed patrons. All hail the Gemnos! In retrospect, invoking the Lord of Greed probably wasn't a smart move. Jasmine reeled back as if struck. Her eyes burned like two yellow furnaces as the shadows crept in close around her. Her aura was far stronger than mine, and I instinctively bowed my head in deference. Forgive me, I whispered. I'll think about it, she snapped. The priestess lunged forward, grabbed my hair, and dragged me to the floor with inhuman strength. I pressed my forehead into the floor and groveled shamelessly. I didn't get this far by defying people like Jasmine. When she was apparently satisfied that she had my attention, she spoke. Call it what you will, but converting Delilah Moraine will serve our long-term goals. You will complete your mission. You will sway her to our cause. 
and when you are assured of her loyalty, you will plant a child inside her. She pressed a long, clawed toe to the side of my throat. Do your fucking job, John. Or Suspira, help me, I'll kick you out and replace you with someone who can. Jasmine's warning was more than just an idle threat. With our shape-shifting powers, any other incubus in Metamore could theoretically fill in for me. Most people would never know the difference. I had a private suspicion that Delilah would be able to tell if anyone could, but that wouldn't do me any good if I found myself turned out on the street. So, I stalled. I focused on persuading Isabel to convert to hedonism, telling Jasmine that getting the maid on our side was the first step to winning over the lady. In truth, Isabel didn't need much convincing. I think her inner nature was a lot closer to ours to begin with, and I'd given her a few nudges in that direction already. That Saturday, Delilah gave her the night off, so Isabel took my invitation and came to temple for the weekly service. She ate and drank with the other members of the congregation, then listened to Jasmine preach about the liberating power of finding your true self through the exploration of pleasure. After that came the worship celebration. Hedonists speak for a church-sponsored orgy. Isabel threw herself into it enthusiastically, looking like she'd found the place where she belonged. In the following week's service, she formally dedicated herself to the church. After being anointed with sacred oils... She lay down on the altar before the assembled congregation. Jasmine shifted into a hermaphrodite form, meant to embody the male and female aspects of sexuality in perfect harmony, and fucked her cross-eyed while the church sang songs of praise to Suspira. Jasmine drew enough energy off of Isabel to knock her unconscious for hours, but when she woke up she looked radiant. She listened eagerly as Jasmine explained the need to convert Delilah, to convince her to take my seed so that the heir to House Velasco would be one of us. She agreed to do whatever she could to open her mistress up to new ways of experiencing pleasure, so as to make her more receptive to the hedonist message. I stood back and let Jasmine do the talking. I didn't want to risk saying anything that would reveal my misgivings about the plan. The next few months were a balancing act. I continued my clandestine meetings with Delilah, meeting with her more and more as the Baron became increasingly tied up in the election race. Delilah had told Vincent about her dance instructor, and he was enthusiastically supportive of anything that made his wife feel more at home in Metamore City. He even invited me to stay for dinner once, though he lost any interest in talking to me after I demonstrated a complete indifference to politics. He saw that my time with Delilah made her happy, though, and after that he seemed content to leave us to our own devices. If he ever suspected his wife of having an affair, he gave no sign of it. No, the real danger was in arousing the suspicions of Gerhard, who could get me in big trouble if he thought I was seducing Delilah, or, on the other hand, in arousing the suspicions of Jasmine, who could get me in equally big trouble if she thought I wasn't seducing Delilah. As for me, I remained stuck in the middle, unable to move in one direction or the other, Every minute I spent with Delilah made me feel more alive, more blissfully fulfilled than anything else I had ever known. I couldn't bear to leave her, and the thought of using my powers to change her was even worse. As spring arrived and gradually gave way to summer, Delilah blossomed. Our long months of lessons had given her new confidence in the social arena, while our torrid love affair had made her believe in the beauty and grace that I saw in her. 
she became the darling of the Metamore peerage, touring the dinner parties and charity events, making friends and allies among the very people who had spurned her just a few months before. She even took a political stance, after a fashion, by joining the fight against global poverty, sponsoring the construction of an orphanage in the war-torn nation of Havane. Everywhere Delilah went, she left people feeling a little lighter in spirit, a little more optimistic about the future. I took her to symphonies and art galleries and fine restaurants, ostensibly using the hedonist principle to engage all of the senses. But more often than not, Delilah's pure joy in these experiences made me appreciate them more. She didn't just take in the music or the art or the food and enjoy it for herself. She invited me to share in the experience, caring more about the connection between us than about the things themselves. That was the most extraordinary thing about Delilah's transformation. No matter what she did, she seemed to look to others before herself, to find her pleasure in their pleasure. When I first met her, she had longed for someone to acknowledge her, to accept her. Once I gave her that acceptance, she became a dynamo of selflessness. The more she gave, the more it seemed to fill her. It was almost the polar opposite of the hunger that drove me as an incubus. And the longer I stayed near her, the more deliciously ensnared I became. I wasn't the only one affected either. Following Jasmine's instructions, Isabel did her best to seduce Delilah, and indeed it didn't take long before Delilah invited her to share her bed. But where Jasmine had expected Delilah to use her servant as a plaything, a way of selfishly sating her own desires, Delilah embraced Isabel as a lover. She lavished on the younger woman all the same care, attention, and affection that she had given to me, no longer treating her as a servant but as an equal. Isabel made a few half-hearted attempts to convince Delilah to come with her to the hedonist temple, but I think she recognized the same thing I had. The temple orgies were hollow and meaningless compared to the love that Delilah gave so willingly. By June, Isabel had stopped coming to temple entirely, using that time instead to be with me and Delilah. In the midst of all this, I had almost forgotten about Gerhard. The old butler praised Delilah's new efforts at charity work. He was conveniently absent whenever we needed time to be together. He was clueless about Delilah's new relationship with Isabel, or at least had turned a blind eye to it in the name of decorum. He hadn't even glowered at me in months. After Vincent gave his approval for me and Delilah to be seen together, I got a little complacent convinced that Gerhard would swallow his misgivings in obedience to his master. I really should have known better. When an ASMR is speaking out about his feelings, at least you know where you stand with him. When he gets quiet, that's when you have to worry. And that's the end of part three. What will Gerhard do to put a stop to John and Delilah's affair? And what will it cost John to get out of it alive? Find out next week. And now, here's your weekly writing report. I wrote 5,737 words this week over the course of 6.75 hours for an average of 850 words per hour. 
If that isn't a new record, it's pretty close. I've now gone 81 days without breaking my chain on the Magic Spreadsheet, which puts me in 21st place on the Spreadsheet's live leaderboard. The next person above me has gone 167 days without breaking her chain, though, so it's probably going to be a while before I move any higher on that list. You can follow my progress by going to Google Plus and searching for Magic Spreadsheet 2015. I'm in the ISBW1 tab. The Three Graces is now at about 26,000 words, and I expect that I'll probably finish the first draft in the next week or so. It was rough going there for a while, but I'm now well into the climax and feeling good about it. I'm already excited about finishing it up and moving on to my next story. Now, let's get to some feedback. On Twitter, Raj Chaos says, The cuckoo is great so far. I can't wait to hear the rest. I must say I would love to join John's church. Keep up the good work. Thanks, Raj. I hope you enjoyed the closer look at the Hedonist Church in this episode. And if you want to learn more about them, check out my novel, Things Unseen, which is on sale in print and ebook. In that story, detectives Kate Katane and David Silverleaf are tasked with hunting down the missing heiress, Mysteria Halloway, whose advocacy for the Church of Hedonism has put her at odds with her conservative father. Oh, and did I mention that she's John's half-sister? Brystifer had a comment on John's birth control amulet. He pointed out that while such an amulet for women would be a fertility suppression charm, for a male it would actually be called a virility suppression charm. I had never noticed that virility and fertility were gender-specific words in English, but I suppose it makes sense. Virile literally means manly in its original usage, and fertile fits with the idea of the womb as a kind of soil where the man's seed is planted. Remember, nobody knew that female mammals produced eggs until the 19th century. Until then, people thought of the baby as something that the man produced and then put inside the woman to grow. Thanks for the note, Brystifer, and I'll make sure that I fix that in future editions of the story. Baldemar Molina wrote in with a technical question about the best way to catch up on the back episodes of this podcast. He's an iPhone user, and he's having trouble trying to listen to the episodes that are no longer listed in the RSS feed for Metamore City. Baldemar writes, I am downloading them as MP3 files. They are going to my iTunes, into my music library. I go to Get Info and change all the files to podcast. At that point, they organize themselves into one album in my podcast file. But when I click to sync them to my phone, it only syncs episode 2 and doesn't sync any of the other ones. Unquote. Baldemar and I went back and forth several times over a few days trying to figure this one out. So I went to the fans of Metamore City group on Facebook and asked for their advice. Ray suggested classifying them as audiobooks in iTunes instead of podcasts, and then setting the episode number as the chapter number before attempting to sync. Mary Alice pointed out that this will make the episodes available in iBooks as well. Several people suggested apps to try. Christina, Chris, and Matt used Downcast. JR suggested Smart Audiobook Player. Jason uses Book Mower. And John recommends Pocket Casts. I don't know how well each of these suggestions will work, Baldemar, but hopefully that'll give you a place to get started. about independent press plus big five. Like, I've heard of big five. 
I but I just didn't really know if Dream Spinner and various others were considered small press, but I knew they were independent press. But yeah, I'm really excited just about my friends getting one of the books translated and also getting an audiobook version. So I just think it's cool that even within that kind of market that there are some publishers who are able to have the funds to do that kind of thing. So it's pretty exciting. Thanks, Sarah. I'm glad I was able to help. And it is definitely cool that your friend is going to get an audiobook of her novel. Chris, this is Mark. I figured out how to leave your voicemail. I'm, I'm sure that makes me terribly clever. Uh, anyway, I just finished the second part of The Cuckoo. I really am enjoying this story a lot so far. I, I think I really missed getting my uh, fix of Metamore City back when you were on hiatus, and I quite selfishly hope that you continue to have a lot of Metamore City inspiration in the uh, years to come as you continue with your new podcasting endeavor. Hi, Mark. I have a lot of stories running through my head right now, and at least half of them are Metamore stories. Rest assured that you'll be hearing a lot more in this universe in the months and years to come. The one thing I wanted to uh, say in particular was, I don't know if it's intentional, but I really enjoyed the nod to basically Hebrew occultism and mysticism in the background of the cult of hedonism. Whether or not you know, I guess I'll tell your audience, that's basically the same thing that, that we believe, that God was one entity that divided God's self up into all these other entities in order to have something to interact with, and that the job of a good person is to find sparks of divinity hidden inside everyday things and elevate them by doing those things in a way that is mindful and compassionate. So it's kind of interesting to see that philosophy in the mouth of, uh, you know, um, uh, producing demon, dude. That was really neat. Um, no, it really was. It'd be very happy. Uh, so anyway, have a good day, and keep on, keep on rolling out awesome stuff. Bye. Thank you. I actually did not know that about Hebrew theology, but that's really cool. The theology of the universalist faiths came from a lot of different places. The notion of mortal creatures as a way for the universe to try to understand itself comes from the Minbari religion in Babylon 5. The idea of a creator god who sacrificed itself to make the universe is from Aztec mythology. And the idea of devoting yourself to one god among many, and embodying their ethos as perfectly as you can, is something that I drew from the devotional paths within Hinduism. That's also where I got the idea of all of the gods being smaller pieces of the ultimate divine essence. If you'd like to leave feedback on the show... You can send your message in text or mp3 audio to metamorcityfeedback at gmail.com. To leave a voicemail, call area code 641-715-3900 and enter extension 255082, followed by the pound sign. You can find me on Facebook at facebook.com slash author Chris Lester and on Twitter as Ethereus, E-T-H-E-R-I-U-S. To converse with your fellow fans, join the Fans of Metamore City Facebook group or the Metamore City discussion forums at metamorecity.freeforums.org. That's all for this week, folks. Tune in next time for another report from the writing desk. Until then, keep it on the bright side. This is Chris Lester, signing out. The theme music for The Cuckoo is Last Tango in NYC by The Four Bags. It was made available through Mevio's Music Alley 
the Podsafe Music Network. You can find more of their music at soundcloud.com and thefourbags.com. The contents of this podcast are copyright 2009 and 2015 by Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. The show is released under a Creative Commons, attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. So don't change it, don't sell it, but feel free to share it all you like. For more information about this license, please visit creativecommons.org.